And as you're being seated, if you would please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 7 through 19 this morning. We take a look at two passages on service, which I think will be marvelously enlightening to us today. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 7. Listen carefully, because this is God's word for you today. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he, that is Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached to you. Let us pray this morning and ask God's blessing on our message this morning. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this passage that you've given to us, for this picture, this window into your life and ministry. May it speak to us today, and may it be applied into our hearts and change our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The highest of honors goes to those that go beyond the call of duty or to extend effort beyond what anybody else does. We've seen a celebration of that in humanity over this last couple of weeks with the Olympics. Those that have trained for years and years to earn a spot on the world stage and only the best of the best are awarded with the honor of the gold medal on the podium. Another medal, though, is given to another class of person, the soldier, the one who goes above and beyond the call of duty. One of the highest honors that we give to them is the Congressional Medal of Honor. Most of those that would win this sort of award are given this award posthumously because they often die in their actions. One such man who managed to survive to receive his Congressional Medal of Honor came by the Staff Sergeant Lucian Adams, who served in World War II. Listen to what he did in order to win this award. So Staff Sergeant Adams charged forward, dodging from tree to tree, firing a borrowed gun from his hip. 
Despite intense machine gun fire at him, Staff Sergeant Adams made his way to within 10 yards of the closest machine gun and killed the gunner. Charging into the vortex of enemy fire, he killed another machine gunner at 15 yards range and forced the surrender of two supporting infantrymen. Although the remainder of the German group concentrated the full force of its automated weapon fire at him, he proceeded through the woods to find and eliminate five more of the enemy. In the course of action, he killed nine Germans, eliminated three machine guns, vanquished a specialized force which was armed with automatic weapons and grenade launchers, cleared the woods of hostile elements, and reopened the severed supply lines to the assault companies of his battalion, largely by himself. And that's rather exceptional, isn't it? Not every soldier who goes onto the battlefield can accomplish all that much. And we will give awards for those sorts of things, for those that go beyond even the high calling of serving your country on the battlefield. And because we have awards like that, and because we award this exceptional behavior, as we should, we can tend to get the same idea that such medals exist for our Christian living. That it is, in fact, possible to go beyond the call of duty and be given some sort of special privilege, some sort of special recognition of what we have done. But what this passage will show to us, especially this first one, 7 through 10, is that there are no Congressional Medal of Honors to be given for Christianity. There is no gold medal for exceptional acts of Christian service. These things are not deserved. But yet God is gracious to us anyway, and that God will give to us beyond what we could ever ask or think. That's even more special because it is not owed to us. So we're going to look at two points today. The first is that service leaves no room for pride. Service leaves no room for pride. And secondly, that we are servants and duty-bound to be grateful So, let's take a look at this first passage together, verses 7 through 10. This is a passage about a servant, and Jesus is drawing from an institution that everyone would have been familiar with. Even homes of modest income would have had at least one servant or two that would be able to go around and take care of the family farm and other things that the family had to attend to. They were expected to serve the people that they worked for. This was not a case where they would think of their own needs first, but they thought of the needs of their employer and their master. And everything else was secondary. Now, the idea for us of having a household servant is a little beyond and unrelatable to us today in our modern society. Most of us do not have staff that run around and do our stuff. So I'm going to borrow from a modern-day analogy from Philip Ryken. For us, imagine that you were going to dinner at one of your favorite restaurants And the waiter sets down the large table, the large plate of food, and says, you know, I think I'm going to join you. That that shrimp scampi looks fantastic, and I have been on my feet for five hours. You don't mind if I take a little pasta, do you? We all would react rather strangely to that. Someone just starts piling into the fork with with your dinner. Or if a realtor who had been successful in finding you a new house on move-in day brought their own boxes with them and began to move into the home that you had purchased... This isn't something that we do. While we do thank the people that do good work for us because we're polite, we're still expecting them to do their job. 
When they come to serve us at the waiting table, we expect them to do that. When the realtor finds us a house, we expect them to do that. Or to reduce it even further, how many of you thanked your cars this morning for getting you to church service today? We don't do that. The car is expected to do its job. And in fact, the only time it really gets attention is when it doesn't start. And when it doesn't do its job. And when the battery dies, when you're in the Walmart parking lot and it's raining. And Anyway, these are things that we're expected to do. This is what we want to do. We're not surprised by their service. But here's where Jesus takes the turn. He's laid out this principle that we would expect service from servants. Then verse 10. So you also. When you have done all that you were commanded. Say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. We are expected to serve. We are expected to obey the commands that God has given to us. And we shouldn't expect Olympic gold when we've done what God has simply required of us. And actually, point of fact, as Philip Ryken comments, we often fail to serve him well. So he actually gets a negative return on his investment. That's why this text would say that we are unworthy servants. We've only done what's expected of us. The car got you here today. You expected it to. And when it doesn't, you're angry. And this is what we so often do with Christ. That we serve and we serve imperfectly. That God is not as often, it seems, if he could be, would be left in a bind if it was just up us. It's a wonderful thing and it's a good thing to follow after God's commands. And I don't want to paint this picture that we follow God's commands that we should, we should feel bad about ourselves or that God is not delighted when we do his good work. He is. But we should not expect to have any leverage with God or that God owes us something because we have done what he said. He does not. Because when we do take this attitude of owing, it's amazing how quickly we can start to expect things from God because we've done this. And turn our relationship into some sort of transactional thing where I've put in the dollar and you vend me out something else. I've sacrificed so I expect a return. That's not what we say. Even our best service, as New Testament scholar Leon Morris put it, does not bring gain to God and give us claim on him. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, where he says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Of course we are expected to. Woe on us if we do not. It's easy for us to slip into this mindset. It's very easy to think that because we have done this thing or have lived this way for a week or two that God owes us some results. 
I used to think that when I was younger. <laughs> I used to think that last week. When I would do my, technically younger, when I would do my devotional times and would say, it's like, all right, I've read up, I've prayed up, life's going to go well today. And oftentimes it would go the worst when I was ready for it. I was expecting God to give me some ease, clear out some of those thorny ways because I've been doing some good. But God's not in a position of owing to me. There are no medals of honor in Christianity. Now, I don't want us to walk away from this thing saying, well, God doesn't owe us anything, so let's just not ask. We're unprofitable servants. We don't, he doesn't want to see us. Let's just cower away and just hope he doesn't zap us for our bad behavior. No, that's not what I want us to see here. I do want us to understand how much God doesn't owe us anything. Because that makes what he does for us so much more special. If you've done something and you deserve to get it, it's not special. You deserve it. It's a wage. It's a payment. There's no graciousness there. When the wait staff comes and waits on your table and they, have, and they are being paid by you, the service doesn't mean as much. But when someone comes to your house, makes dinner for you, and sets it on the table and then walks out of the house and doesn't expect anything in return, that's a really special act of service, isn't it? It means something more. And that's what we're going to see here starting in verse 11. Of Jesus being gracious to these lepers. He's not doing this because he has to. He's doing this because he wants to. That's a beautiful look into the character and nature of Jesus. So let's look at it together. As we slide into our second point here, that we are servants and duty-bound to be grateful. Here in verse 11, Jesus is going through this city. He's passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he comes across 10 lepers. Now, we covered the healing of another leper several weeks ago. Uh, well, probably several months ago now. Uh, and maybe we have forgotten, but the life of a leper was not a pleasant one. Our going through the restrictions for COVID have been irritating and annoying, but it has nothing on what was expected of a leper. A leper was someone who had, would cover a variety of different skin conditions, and those that would have been afflicted with this skin condition were forced to live outside of the city in leper camps. The only other person that you would be around was someone else that no one else wanted to touch either. And if ever you did have to go into the city to get your food, you had to let your hair hang down and cover your lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, anytime someone might have approached you and touched you. It's the original social distancing. And this was something that lasted for some a few years, but for many, their entire lives. They couldn't be around their family. They couldn't go into anybody else's house. Because anywhere they go, they would spread uncleanness. In fact, uh, Josephus, who was a prominent Jewish historian around the time of Jesus, had thought of the leper as not being any really different than a corpse. And the idea of bringing back someone from leprosy was akin to raising the dead. Because that's what their life was like. 
So here are these 10 lepers, and they see Jesus. Imagine what's going through their minds. They've heard about this. Surely one of those who has been in the leper camp who was cleansed, they've heard about that. It's like, we haven't seen Jeremiah in a while. I wonder what happened to him. It's like, oh, do you hear? He's with his family now. He's been cured. How did that happen? This was this guy named Jesus who was going around and is curing people and healing sicknesses and doing all these things. And here he is arriving. And they are shouting at Jesus because they can't come that close to him. So they have to call out and say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. They know who he is. They know what he can do. So he tells them, verse 14. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, why does Jesus do this? Well, in the Old Testament times, it was possible that you could recover from these skin conditions. And when you would, you would go back to the priest and you would show where the area was that you were affected by. And you can actually read in all the medical detail uh, back in Leviticus. And they would look for certain signs that this was done. And if you were cured of your leprosy, then you were cleared to come back and be a part of the community of people. So he's telling them, Go ahead and go to the priests, and they will declare you clean. Now, they turn around, look down. They are still leprous because it says that they weren't cleansed until they were on the way. So there's some faith here. They're walking towards the priest, and they look no different than they did five minutes ago. They had to cry out and get Jesus' attention from afar because they had this condition, and they still do as they walk to the priest's. Now, that's really quite some faith that these people have. Imagine going to, being told to go to a party and you will be healed of your stomach bug on the way. Could imagine the sort of nervousness of showing up to a party being so obviously sick and being cast out again. But here, they've been cleansed. And they're able to re-enter society. And one notices and turns back. Now remember, he has to go to the priest first to re-enter society. But he's not gone to the priest yet. He's turning around and is going back to Jesus, the one who has cleansed him. He does it, as Riken says, immediately, not waiting until he met with the priests, but going straight to Jesus. First things first. Notice he comes back and falls at Jesus' feet. Social distancing no longer necessary. Being cleansed and gives Jesus thanks. This also is quite a bit of faith too. Imagine thinking, what if this cure is temporary? What if by going back to Jesus, I get this condition back again? But he doesn't. He is so focused on Christ and not himself. And gives thanks to Jesus. Now, Luke drops the hammer in this moment. When he says in verse 16, it gets its own sentence. Now, he was a Samaritan. Now, this does not have impact on us today. Like it would have in Luke's time. 
Because the only experience that we have with Samaritans are those that came to Christ early, those that were the only ones that helped the man that was robbed on the side of Jericho, and the one leper who comes back to thank Jesus. But this would have been unbelievably shocking to the people at the time. To say that Jews hated Samaritans is really difficult to to capture today. We could sort of point to imagine your opposing political party being the one that comes back to Jesus, but even that doesn't really capture it. The Samaritans were people that had intermingled with foreigners. They were half-breeds in the Jews' minds, impure people that we had nothing to do with. In fact, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she says, why are you talking with me? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But here, this is the one that's coming back and being faithful. The one who has probably not been going to temple. The one who has not been hearing about God's law. The one who has not been seen as God's chosen people. The one not expected to come back. That's the one that comes back. And here, Jesus answers, verse 17, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus was right to expect thanks. Which is why he's able to say, where is everybody else? I cleansed these people. Where is my thanks? Now, for those of us that are human beings and are sinful, we take, if we were to hear ourselves say that, we would say it's just like, I expect a lot of yourself. But Jesus is different. Jesus is actually God. He actually deserves thanks and worship and gratitude for what he's done. And still does, by the way. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is something that Jesus expects. And here in verse 19, Jesus gives the Samaritan a different gift. He says, and he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, if you're reading in another version of the Bible, or even if you're reading out of the ESV, which is what I preach out of, you might see a little little number next to your faith has made you well. There is another way to translate this, and it is, your faith has saved you. I've been convinced by my other commentators that that is actually the best way to look at that. Everyone else in this leper clan has been made well. So for Jesus to say this to the Samaritan would seem redundant. It's like, of course, you've been made well. But there's something special that's being given to this Samaritan, in that his faith has saved him. Now, is this because he was grateful? No, he was given this gift of faith, and that's why he was grateful. He comes back to Jesus knowing what it was, who Jesus is, and falls at his feet, which is a sign of worship, and shows that his heart has been changed, that he has been saved from far more than leprosy, but that he has been saved from his sin. This, again, is something that he receives something that is all of grace. So where does this leave us today? What's our takeaway from these two passages of learning about service not giving us 
a reason for pride, and in fact, service being a duty for gratitude. We've been covering the last couple of weeks the incredible, incredibly difficult task of forgiveness. And forgiveness is very, very hard. And what we have seen is that in order to do this, you have to have a very deep faith in Christ to do that. Especially if the person that you have to forgive also lives in your house. But even when we do this, even when we forgive, this is something that Christ has called us to do. And as much as we may feel like we earned something, even in that, we haven't. But Jesus is still so gracious. He is the master who does welcome his servants in from the field and does say, recline at table. He doesn't have to be gracious to us, but he is anyway. And offers to us while we labor in the field, whether we've been bearing the heat of the day or whether Christ brings us in last minute, he gives the same grace to us all. And promises that joyful end when all sin, griefs, fear, and disappointment are gone. This is what we look forward to. God owes us nothing, but he has given us everything anyway. So we are not putting God in our debt, but we are constantly in his And gives us grace. The Samaritan was simply doing what he should have done. And what the other nine failed to do. And is an illustration of what we should be about. Of worshiping God. Is this hard to do sometimes? We need to be honest, it is. There are some times where the last thing you think is that, well, I should get a medal for all that I've done. It's easy to think that way. And sometimes people... All the best of intentions will tell us that. But it dampens what it is that Christ has done for us. If we could in any way deserve the gift that Jesus gives to us, it would shrink that tremendously. But if we constantly keep in our minds that we are the ones who owe, that we are the ones that on our best days are unprofitable servants, and then look and see the gracious grace of God, that's what gives us the power to go and to continue and to serve. We had spiritual leprosy, casting us out of the community of God with no chance to return unless Jesus comes and sets us free. And he did so at great cost to himself. It wasn't just a word. It wasn't just turn and go to someone else. It was, go to, it was Christ to go to the cross. He didn't owe us anything, but yet he took on all of our debt and brought it onto himself and paid everything. When Jesus says in verse 19, your faith has saved you, it's faith in what Christ was about to do. The Samaritan sitting at his feet was going to need to look up to Christ on the cross because that's what it was going to take. To make that right. And that's where we stand today.
Do you feel undeserving of that? Good. We should. Because that's what makes it so amazing. You are not beyond forgiveness, brothers and sisters. There is no condition that you can be in that Christ cannot bring you back from. Even when all, as we looked at last week, when all reason and experience and probability would tell us otherwise, that Christ is able to work and cleanse. So come to him today. If you have not, do not delay another moment. No, you don't deserve it, but that's just the great thing about it. You don't deserve the gospel, and you never will. And that's good. It keeps us where we're supposed to be. That remembering that we have such a great God. Because the moment you think that you can deserve it will begin, will begin to take into your mind that you could one day not deserve it and never get it back. You've never deserved it, even on your best days. So rest actually in that. Not using that as an excuse to be sinful. We're not going to do that. But using this as an occasion to rest and know that he has delivered you. This is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I do thank you for sending your son to die for us on the cross. This is a gift that we could never have deserved. We could never have earned. If we had a thousand lifetimes to work, we would still be unprofitable servants. So I pray that you would take this hard word and use it to comfort. That we would look to our sin and be able to be honest with it. See it in all of its horrifying ugliness. And yet see the gracious work that you've done on the cross as being infinitely more so than that. And Lord, if there is anyone who is here that has not put their faith in Christ or is watching online, I pray that you would work in their hearts, cleanse them of their spiritual leprosy and call them back to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.